Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Accidental Gods on Race, Empire, and Men Unwittingly Turned Divine by Anna Della Subin. Ever since 1492, when Christopher Columbus made landfall in the New World and was hailed as a heavenly being, the accidental god has haunted the modern age. From Haley Selassy, acclaimed as a living god in Jamaica, to Britain's Prince Philip, who became the unlikely center of a new religion in the South Pacific Island, men made divine, nearly always men, have appeared on every continent. And because these deifications always emerge at moments of turbulence, civil wars, imperial conquest, revolutions, they have much to teach us. In a revelatory history spanning five centuries, a cast of surprising deities helps to shed light on the thorny questions of how our modern concept of religion was invented, why religion and politics are perpetually entangled in our supposedly secular age, and how the power to call someone divine has been used and abused by both oppressors and the oppressed. From nationalist uprisings in India to Nigerian spirit possession cults, Subin explores how deification has been a means of defiance for colonized peoples. Conversely, we see how Columbus, Cortez, and other white explorers amplified stories of their godhood to justify their dominion over native peoples, setting into motion the currents of racism and exclusion that have plagued the New World ever since they touched its shores. Anadella Subin is a writer critic, senior editor at Bidoon, the award-winning publishing and curatorial initiative focused on Middle East and its diasporas, and a contributing editor at the Public Domain Review. Her work has appeared in many prestigious publications, such as the London Review of Books, Harper's, the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, the New Yorker, and more. Anadella was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers for 2022 by Prospect Magazine. She studied philosophy and classics at the University of Chicago and the history of religion at Harvard Divinity School. She's with me today to talk about her latest book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. Anna Della, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Carrie. It's great to be on the podcast. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, you've got quite a career writing and editing and how you managed to carve out this career. Um, so, you know, I'm one of those strange people who always wanted to be a writer since I was a child. Um, when I used to make up stories about a cast of extraterrestrial aliens, um, I grew up in New York City where I'm speaking to you from today. But as I got older, the question then became, well, what do I want to write about? I studied classics at Chicago, and in particular through my professor, Wendy Doniger, I became very interested in mythology and Sanskrit philosophies of illusion. And then I went on to study religion at Harvard Divinity School. 
Um, and kind of prophesying the subject of my book, my education immersed me in ancient ideas of the apotheosis of Roman emperors, Sanskrit ideas of avatars, and early Christian notions of deification. Um, and when I graduated from Harvard, I took a job at Badoon, a magazine and curatorial platform about the Middle East. And it became kind of a way to deprogram myself from academic writing. Badoon has always encouraged its writers to be as idiosyncratic as possible. And so the magazine became a kind of laboratory of freedom for me, um, as small magazines so often are for writers. So it was really there that I started forging my niche, um, which is at the intersection of religion, politics, history, and myth. Awesome. All right. So then tell us how you came to write this particular book. Yes. Yeah, so in 2011, when the uprisings of the Arab Spring erupted in Cairo, Badoon decided to pick up its office on the Lower East Side in New York and move to Cairo, taking up residence in an art gallery just off Tahrir Square. Um, so we wanted to make an issue about the moment and kind of try to pay homage to what was happening. So we descended into this moment of just pure political ecstasy just after the fall of Mubarak. Um, and we were thinking a lot about what moves people to act politically, to risk their lives for political ideas. And it seemed to me that what I was witnessing went beyond the purely secular plane. So, you know, I had been in, immersed in the ancient world, but suddenly this was like my moment of encounter or collision with the very alive present. Um, I was thinking a lot about charismatic autocrats and the power of the crowd. And in a sort of strange epiphany, I thought, well, what happens if you have too much charismatic power? You might find yourself unwittingly turned into a god like Haile Selassie in the religion of Rastafari, um, whom I'm sure we'll talk about later. So I began to search for other instances of involuntary deification and started constructing in my mind this figure of the accidental god. And it turned into a long, strange quest for me. Um, the book would ultimately take me nearly 10 years to write, and a lot of that was spent doing research at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, um, where I lived for six years. Wow. Okay. That yeah, that's amazing because you do compile um, a lot of examples. So it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that <laughs> that it was a long project. That's amazing. Yes, so exactly. <laughs> So you say that the stories of men unwittingly turned divine is the history of how the modern world came to be. So this is a really fascinating lens through which to explore history. So tell us what you mean by this, and perhaps also say something about the scope of your project, such as um, what questions you are or are not investigating here. Um, yeah, so maybe we should start with a few basic definitions. Um, so what do I mean by an accidental god? Um, an accidental god is a person who has had divinity thrust upon them through forces of accident, chance, or coincidence. He's not someone who's a spiritual leader in his community and is then deified um, or the zealous founder of a cult. He's someone who, for whatever reason, is in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
in incidents that often form cross-cultural encounters. They, you know, they link people on one side of the earth to the other in often unexpected ways. Um, and so an important principle of the book is that there isn't one single way to be a god or become one. Divinity isn't a binary of man and God, but a spectrum, um, one that encompasses all kinds of beings, spirits, ancestral deities, messiahs, avatars, um, Islamic jinn, fertility gods, um, or what the late anthropologist Marshall Solins called meta-persons. So the accidental God is an archetype. And what I'm arguing in my book is that these figures have so much to teach us, in part because these modern apotheoses so often arise at moments of political upheaval, imperialist invasions, nationalist unrest, times of loss or dispossession of land. Um, the narratives I look at stretch in time from 1492, when Columbus alleged that he was hailed as a celestial being, right up to the present-day deification of Trump. Um, but, you know, I'm glad you also asked me what questions I'm not investigating, um, because in looking at all of these stories, I'm not interested in whether people really believed in these accidental gods. For me, belief is the wrong question to ask, because, you know, belief isn't a universal concept. It actually has a specific and deeply Christian history. Um, many languages originally didn't have a word that corresponded to it. You wouldn't necessarily believe in something, you would just know it. It was your worldview. Um, and I think, you know, we can ultimately never know for sure what anyone believes about anything. We can only know what they say or do. So I tried in my book never to write a sentence about a certain person or group of people that says X believed this because you you know at least to me that sounded condescending or conveyed some doubt on my part that it was true. So you know I, instead I'll write like they said this or the idea circulated. Um, I try to use the literary style of the book itself to create a kind of space in which seemingly unusual ideas about the sacred would emerge as plausible. Um, so rather than a forensic hunt for belief, I'm looking at why so many narratives of accidental apotheosis exist, um, what purpose they serve, and how they've shaped our world. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction as well, because um, I agree with you, you can't get inside people's heads about, you know, and what would be the point of trying to evaluate, well, to what degree do these people actually believe this? I, I agree with you that that's not really a great direction to go in. And it also really helps you sidestep, like you say, any kind of shadow of condescension, or making any kind of judgment about, uh, is this a is this a reasonable belief or something like that, which is um, maybe a theme that a person might have in the back of their mind as they're reading it to think of for themselves. But I think it's a wise decision on your part to, to sidestep any, because what would be the point of that? It's, it's an academic approach to, to just compiling these examples for the sake that they existed. Right. And um, yeah. 
So right. and for anybody yeah. wondering why this book would show up on a secularism podcast, because it's not overtly about arguing against these beliefs or, or making those kinds of judgments, I think it is still very interesting to take a kind of um, just informative approach about the range of the types of beliefs that are out there. So, Right, exactly. All right. So <clears throat> part one late theogony you start with the crowning of a man named rastafari marconin uh, as emperor of ethiopia among other titles he was given in 1930 and the jamaican preacher who declared him a god so amazingly he found nearly a million devotees the preacher did that is for belief in rastafari um so talk about this movement what were the conditions that led to this degree of adoption who were its apostles and prophets, and what were the outcomes? Yes, so I begin my book with Haile Selassie because Rastafari is in many ways the most successful religion to coalesce around an accidental god. Um, It's maybe the most familiar, um, but there's a lot that people might not know about it. Um, For instance, the role played by an issue of National Geographic magazine at its founding. Um, So in 1930, Rastafari crowned himself emperor of Ethiopia in a spectacular ceremony in Addis Ababa. And he was deep in the struggle for succession. Um, So he wanted to create a veneer of legitimacy on the international stage. So he invited kind of all the powers of the earth to be there. And the American consul general was covering the event for National Geographic, and he wrote about it in these kind of rapturous biblical tones um, in an article illustrated with these amazing photographs. And in one line in particular, he seemed to suggest that King George V's own son, the Duke of Gloucester, had gotten down on bended knee before Rastafari um, and paid homage to him. And so on the other side of the world in Jamaica, people heard the news of the coronation. Um, They saw the National Geographic issue. And it it was, you know, a revelation. Um, Several people at the exact same moment had the same idea that God was alive on earth right now and he was black. And, you know, the king's own son had bowed down to him. Um, And so this was a deeply powerful idea on an island that was still under British colonial rule where people were facing daily poverty and hardship and racism Um, And so the idea quickly caught fire um, through several early prophets. The most well-known is Leonard Howell, um, and there were others, including Robert Hines and Nathaniel Hibbert. um, And several of them uh, wrote kind of very beautiful scriptures um, and of course, a rich tradition of of poetry and hymn. Um, but you know, the religion was in many ways deeply paradoxical. Um, Haile Selassie, you know, became a powerful divine figure of Black liberation theology. But he himself didn't consider himself Black. He thought that he was Semitic. 
um, and Marcus Garvey would become caught up in Rastafari prophecy as kind of the John the Baptist figure. Um, but Garvey, who is you know a famous um, activist and um, trade unionist, um, he himself also kind of rejected Haile Selassie because because he wouldn't accept his, you know, what he saw as his blackness. So so there were many levels of paradox um, embedded within the religion. Um, when, when Rastafari was crowned, he took on the name Haile Selassie. That was his imperial name. And he would fine anyone who called him Rastafari as being disrespectful. But and yet the religion would become known as Rastafari. Um, but you know, um, being compliant with your worshippers isn't ever the attribute of any god. So gods are able to weather paradoxes. That's kind of a sign of divinity. So. Yeah. So what then happened with Rastafarianism in Jamaica and with King Rastafari himself? Yeah, so by the mid-1960s, the newly independent Jamaican government had decided that it had, quote, a Rasta problem. Um, The religion had spread all across the island. Um, It was being unfairly scapegoated and blamed for kind of a host of societal ills. Um, There was a fixation on its use of smoking weed or ganja. um, And it was kind of seen as like a nuisance. And, you know, to outsiders, no one was trying to understand the very sophisticated and interesting theologies and ideas behind Rastafari. Um, So the Jamaican government had the idea to invite Haile Selassie on his first state visit to Jamaica in order to publicly deny his divinity in front of the islanders. And they thought that this would would put an end to the religion for sure. Um, But it actually had completely the opposite effect. Um, On the day in 1966, when Haile Selassie's Ethiopian Airlines plane broke through the clouds and touched down on the tarmac in the airport in Kingston, it was seen as you know, really the parousia or the appearing or presence of the God on earth. Um, Thousands of Rastafari worshippers had gathered at the airport. um, And in the crowd was Rita Marley, um, who said that she saw the stigmata in Haile Selassie's hand, and and she would be the one to convert Bob Marley to the new religion. So this was really a powerful moment. Haile Selassie allegedly did say at a reception, I am not God, but any denials were just explained away um, by his worshipers and, you know, that signs that he was testing the faithful or that, you know, he he, like what what God would say, yes, I'm God. And, you know, I think so then, you know, Haile Selassie famously is remembered as having been a terrible dictator against his own people. So another level of paradox is, you know, how can how can this like autocrat 
who turned a blind eye to the famine in Ethiopia and, and let his own people starve? How can how can this person become a kind of a, a god of liberation theology? Um, and you know, Haile Selassie. So in 1974. Um, Haile Selassie was overthrown by the military coup led by the Dirge um, and later executed. Um, so you might wonder how the Rastafari faithful could kind of recognize, reconcile these histories um, with their God. Um, there are a lot of interesting, interesting ideas that, you know, were prompted, like, it, it posed the question of evil, you know, why, why would God allow his people to suffer a, a famine? Um, maybe Haile Selassie was angry with his people and so forth. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just a fascinating history of kind of theology being created in, in the present in real time. So next you tell the story of how Prince Philip, royal consort to Queen, uh, consort to Queen Elizabeth II, was considered a god by the people of the Pacific Island, Tana. So I'll admit I've never heard of this before, even though just like the last story, it's even maybe more recent, more contemporary than that. So what's the story here? Yeah, so in 1974, um, that same year that Haile Selassie was deposed, um, Prince Philip was vacationing with the Queen in the South Pacific on board their royal yacht, Britannia. And they were nearby the island of Tana in Vanuatu when several local chiefs saw Philip standing on deck in his white Navy uniform, looking resplendent. And they realized that he was the son of the local volcano god, Kalbaban, um, who's a deity who had left Tana to go out into the world, but it was said he would someday return, bringing with him prosperity, an end to the island's poverty, and even to death itself. So a new religion sprang up, and within a few years, Philip had learned of it and started this sort of pen pal relationship with his worshippers. So, for instance, they mailed him a ritual pig-killing stick, and then Philip posed with it on the lawn of Buckingham Palace and sent back a signed picture. Um, and later they even had a face-to-face -face meeting at Windsor Castle, um, which was televised. Um, but so in my book, I'm investigating how actually the palace itself has played a role in building and sustaining the religion in a kind of mutual myth-making um, because, you know, for the crown, it's been useful because even as Vanuatu achieved independence from British and French colonial rule, Philip's deification seemed to show that the British monarchy was still a people set apart, you know, still somehow divine, even in the twilight of empire. And, you know, there's been a lot of, of like, honestly, racist derision of the Philip worshippers in the British tabloids. Um, but in my book, I'm wondering, is it any more irrational to believe in the divinity of Prince Philip than in the divine right of kings, you know, which is still very much in the background of legitimizing the monarchy today? Or is it any more rational to believe in Philip um, than that the British monarchy should still exist? 
you know, these are all legitimate questions. Um, and it's been really interesting to see how the religion has incorporated the news kind of kind of in a similar way as the Rastafari religion, you know, the news of Philip's death, um, the news of Charles's ascension to the throne. Um, and there's a real question as to whether Charles is the next vessel of the Godhead or whether um, whether that divinity kind of stays with Philip. Um, there's rumors of a schism within the religion, but we'll have to stay tuned to see what happens. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder what the Tana people's feeling is towards the monarchy as an institution along the lines that you raise, especially since um, Meghan Markle joined the family. Um, you know, I, I think Meghan's great. I have no issues, but I also don't see the the um, um, the royal family as anointed by God or in any kind of religious terms. And so I just, yeah, you're right. It would be very interesting to, to watch the town of peoples and see how their feelings evolve. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's a really um, masculine, male-focused religion. I've never come across any perspectives from them on Meghan Markle at all. Um, at one point, I was thinking of actually going to visit the the worshippers, but they, they don't really speak to female journalists. Um, I so see. I don't know. We'll have to see. <laughs> Okay, then. Maybe she's irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, next, let's talk about General Douglas MacArthur. And here's a demigod who I've, I have heard of, actually. Um, so he... Um, was rather incredibly deified four times over. I never heard about that. That is amazing. So you write that, quote, across three continents and four countries, MacArthur was elevated to divinity um, of a unique species, substance, and shape, each of which expressing a prayer for something deeply opposed to the politics and agenda of the man himself. This is remarkable. So tell us all about this. Right. Yeah. So, so MacArthur is iconic as this emblem of 20th century American power, you know, and his aviator sunglasses and smoking his corncob pipe. Um, and he was revered by many in the Republican Party for his military exploits in the Philippines and the Korean War. But he was also literally deified in four different ways and countries, um, which really captures how divinity is never a binary, but a spectrum. So the earliest way was um, in Panama when American troops descended to build the canal. They were destroying the landscape and displacing the Guna people um, and unleashing new diseases. And so a group of Guna shamans decided to construct idols of a divine MacArthur to use in curing rituals in a trance state to kind of try to undo the damage that the American military had wrought. And so in Panama, MacArthur took on this kind of supernatural power to fight for, for the Guna people's own side. Um, so then in Japan, after the defeat in World War II, the Emperor Hirohito was forced to renounce his status as a living god, famously. Um, and in many ways, MacArthur, who briefly ruled over the country, began to fill that void of godhood. 
Um, people sent him rapturous letters that spoke of his divinity. Um, sacrificial offerings flooded his mailroom, like tiny bonsai trees and walking sticks and offerings of food. Um, it was this very brief moment in which people in Japan were trying to refashion the old religious concepts to create meaning out of a very confusing new reality in which, you know, their enemy was ruling over them. Um, so then in South Korea, after the war, the divine spirit of MacArthur began to possess the bodies of Korean shamans who would dress in American uniforms in a trance state. And sometimes they would find themselves unwittingly sleepwalking to MacArthur's statue um, and waking up there, not knowing how they got there. Um, and then lastly, in the Biak archipelago near New Guinea, MacArthur entered this myth, which told of a prophet called Manarmakari, who would liberate the islands from all hardship, colonial oppression, and death. Um, and so what I'm fascinated by in these four case studies is how each one becomes a way of imagining a world built anew. It, each one is a kind of alternative future in the face of the immense destruction that American empire emblemized by MacArthur as wrought um, and, of course, continues to unleash just up to the present day. So in your next chapter, you focus on the stories of spirit possession in Africa during colonization. You write, quote, the spirit movement of Hauka was a way for the Nigerians to occupy the French just as the French had occupied Niger. Deification was a means of dissidence and resistance on a plane too high for the mechanisms of European imperial authority to reach. I find that super interesting. And other colonized countries have their own stories of anti-colonial spirits possessing or duplicating senior officials or soldiers of the occupying forces. So what was happening here and how did these phenomena enact resistance? Right. Yeah. So I'm looking at this constellation of spirit possession cults, such as the Hauka or the Tsar, that stretched from the Ivory Coast to the Sudan, um, in which European imperialists saw deified counterparts of themselves manifest as colonial spirits. They saw their own spirits literally enter and run around in other people's bodies, um, quite weirdly, um, in a trance state. So, for instance, in 1925 in Niger, when a French officer named Horace Crochichia attempted to suppress the Hauka movement, a new spirit incarnated inside the colonial prison, which was the deified form of Crochichia himself. Um, and this spirit led the Hauka prisoners on a jailbreak and then continued to possess people across West Africa entering their bodies during the trance. Um, and so Horace Crochichia himself in old age would later on reflect on the weirdness of this whole episode of, you know, of seeing his own spirit running rampant um, and, and, you know, enacting, enacting things that were completely against his own imperialist agenda. Um, and so the cults created entire duplicates of French, German, and British colonial regimes. 
and they would perform military drills and marches in uniform. Um, but it was much more than just an act of parody or mimesis. You know, spirit possession was a way to reclaim sovereignty by spiritually and physically participating in the sanctity of the state. Um, it took place on a seemingly esoteric plane, but then at the same time, Hauka practitioners would actually enter mainstream politics in Niger. So including the military officer Seini Kunche, who would rule for a decade um, and was said to be a Hauka medium. Um, and so for the practitioners, spirit possession was often painful and unwilled it was accidental that a spirit found you. Um, you would catch these spirits kind of like you catch a cold. Um, and also in a way, a lot of the symptoms of spirit possession are quite like those of pregnancy, like nausea, or vomiting, you know, literally being implanted with another spirit. Um, but it was precisely in the fact of its kind of unwantedness that its power lay. So you know, these forces of accident, error, and chance formed a vortex of emancipatory possibility during this, you know, moment of, of like, intense colonial violence across, across West Africa. So the next chapter is, in fact, about a personal friend of yours, Nathaniel Tarn whom you classify as a deified anthropologist. So I want you to tell us about him, if you could, as well as uh, what else you learned about this as a general phenomenon. Yeah, so Nathaniel Tarn is a very special figure in my book because he's the only god who's my friend. Um, he's a legendary poet and anthropologist who's in his 90s now, um, we ended up going on this sort of eccentric road trip together in Morocco, where he unfolded the story of his divinity over several nights. Um, it all started in the 1950s when he was a doctoral student at my alma mater, the University of Chicago, doing field work in Guatemala in the village of Santiago Atitlan. And he had arrived at this moment of conflict between a group of Orthodox Catholic priests and a group that still worshiped the indigenous Maya deity known as the mom, who took the physical form of this four foot tall idol with a carved wooden mask on top. So some priests stole the mask of the mom and then Tarn tracked it down and arranged for it to be sent to a museum in Paris for restoration and safekeeping until it was safe for it to return. Um, but meanwhile, all of these prophecies began to swirl about the stranger who is in some way connected with the disappearance of the god. Um, and one day someone entered Nathaniel's study and said, you know, a lot of people here think that you're a god. And Tarn, Nathaniel Tarn, who has a kind of curmudgeonly demeanor, was really confused. Um, he had no idea what 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 they meant. Um, and when Tarn returned in the 1970s, bringing the mask back with him, he realized that these legends had persisted um, for 20 years. So it turned out that he was recognized as the mom's prophet, Francisco Sohuel, 
who has a kind of Christ-like aspect um, and also has power over the rain, um, rains and thunderstorms. Um, and so in my book, I'm on this road trip with this living God, Nathaniel, and he's telling me all these stories, but it's a way to kind of pull back my Wizard of Oz curtain to show that I am just as implicated in this myth-making too. Um, it speaks to a theme throughout my book that deification not only happens through kind of acts of prostration or epiphanies or rituals, but also through history writing, through recording and retelling narratives, footnotes, um, you know, I've had a hand in perpetuating his apotheosis by writing my chapter. Um, although I will say I was able to corroborate his story with the accounts of later anthropologists to the region. Um, but so Nathaniel Tarn is part of a whole pantheon of deified anthropologists for whom any attempt at scientific objectivity becomes hopelessly muddied when they find themselves uncannily enmeshed in their own research. Um, but for me, Tarn was also an interesting way to hear about what the experience of getting mistaken for a god is actually like. Um, so, you know, Nathaniel is like all of us, like he has good days and depressed days. And it's interesting to think, well, what does being a god do? You know, I think there's a contradiction we all feel between wanting to live forever and wanting to end it all. Um, we kind of swing between those two extremes and being mistaken for a God kind of electrifies that contradiction. It's hard to know what to do with one's own divinity. Like there we are having breakfast and he's talking about his Godhood, but he's mistaking the sugar for salt um, and pouring it on his hard-boiled egg. So. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <clears throat> All right, well, now let's now move into the second section of your book, which focuses on incidents from the British Raj. So you first recount a number of instances of British officers in colonial India becoming posthumously deified. Um, as you write, however, they are merely late comers to a much longer Indian religious tradition of deification, especially of those who suffered violent or tragic deaths. Is that right? So please tell us some of these stories as well. How did the British and as well, how did the British respond to this? Right. Yeah. So when the British arrived in India, they were surprised to find that that many of their colleagues were being deified at tomb shrines after their deaths. Um, they were given offerings of brandy and cigars. Um, and this becomes a kind of trope across colonialist travelogues and chronicles from the period. Um, so these figures include Captain Pole, who dies um, in battle, kind of trying to invade um, the Indian region of Travancore, and then he's said to become the cause of all sickness and death in the particular village where he becomes worshipped. Um, or you have figures like the Lieutenant William Carden, who was venerated by Hindus and Muslims alike, and he just he really like wanted 
sacrifices of hard-boiled eggs, apparently, rather than rather than brandy and cigars. Um, and then you you find figures like Captain James Stewart, whose severed head became enshrined inside a police station, um, and the policemen would actually perform rituals to him. Um, and so the British were captivated by this, um, but they were only parvenus to a long tradition of deifying those who had died in sudden or tragic or accidental ways. For it was thought that these spirits couldn't reincarnate and they would literally embody the violence they had seen. So their deification became a kind of way to mediate with the power of death itself you know, to reverse our universal defeat and turn it into a kind of salvation. Um, And as the British invaded the Indian subcontinent, they were dying in often violent and conspicuous ways. Um, But the British didn't really attempt to understand these traditions on their own terms. Um, Instead, they were deeply useful, um, these acts of deification were deployed to paint a portrait of an irrational, fanatical East contrasted with a rational Christian West and to mark the East as a need of further colonial rule or further civilizing influence from the British. So these stories of deified officers really sanctified and legitimized the project of empire itself. Hmm. So next you look at a particular British officer in India who was worshipped by Sikh sepoys before his death, possibly because of how violent he was. And he was then taken up by the British as a paragon of manliness, uh, which coincides with the so-called muscular Christianity movement, which is an attempt to articulate an ideal of a uh, masculine Protestant man, which they drew in contrast to the supposedly effeminate Catholics with their worship of St. Mary, etc. So there's so much cringe to unpack here. Let's get into it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably the cringiest part of my book. Um, (laughs) So, you know, so by the mid 19th century, older ideals of masculinity, which were based around male honor and chivalry and noble blood, um, had given way to this kind of more athletic and aggressive ideal of masculinity, um, which is one that we still recognize today. There was this feeling that a new sense of invincibility was needed to hold together an empire that was ever on the verge of slipping away. Um, And so no one epitomized this new, deeply Protestant ideal of manliness more than the commanding Brigadier General John Nicholson, who you mentioned, um, who's probably the most violent figure in my book. Nicholson was furious when he learned of his divinity, first among Sikhs, but then it spread to Hindu and Muslim devotees as well. Um, And they all called themselves the Nicholsanis. And it was said Nicholson would beat his Nicholsani worshippers in the attempt to cease their adoration. But the more he whipped them, the greater their fervor grew in this kind of alchemy of love and hate. And he kept a severed head on his desk to ward off the worshippers who would try to slip into his tent. Um, To give you a sense of Nicholson's politics, he 
he considered that like the lives of women and children shouldn't be spared if, you know, an empire is at stake. Um, so he's a really kind of monstrous figure. Um, but so two years after his death in the Indian Mutiny in 1857, Nicholson was canonized in the Scottish reformer Samuel Smiles's best-selling treatise, Self-Help, um, and the, which is a foundational text of the self-help genre. So for Smiles, Nicholson was the apex of masculinity and courage and proper character. Um, to you know, to the question of how a person should shape himself, self-help seemed to say, act like a man who might be mistaken for a god. Um, act like John Nicholson. Um, and the Nicholson story inspired Kipling, who invoked him in the novel Kim, um, and in other tales that painted the Orient as a kind of fantasy training ground where boys went to become real men. Um, and so Kipling's fables seem to suggest that British divinity worked in everyone's favor. Um, and then Nicholson appeared again in the first edition of the Boy Scouts manual, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, but Lord Baden-Powell, the founder of the Boy Scouts, in, uh, Boy Scouts um, included the script of a play in which boys could act out being Nicholson for themselves. Um, so it was that a man mistaken for divine becomes a role model for generations of schoolboys to teach them how a white man should act in the world. And it's interesting that that paragon of so-called manliness um, is is really a, just emblematic of toxic masculinity too, which I'm glad you mentioned. You know, we we see this continued today within the Protestant movement in particular, and and maybe we'll connect that to Donald Trump, like you were kind of alluding to before. But yeah, really interesting ideas here. But shifting gears, let's talk now about the apotheosis of women. So um, unsurprisingly, there's far fewer of them than men, but you were actually able to track down a number of examples through history. So tell us about some of these. Yeah, so I have an index of inadvertent deities in the back of my book. Um, and out of the nearly 90 figures um, that I cover, only 10 of them are women. Um, the most prominent is probably Queen Victoria. Um, in 1883, the British papers were reporting a sect in Orissa um, in India that worshipped her as a goddess, in part because it was her face that was on the currency of the rupee that was circulating. Um, and coins often historically had portraits of gods on them. Um, so it made a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, Victoria's divinity was paradoxical because she didn't believe in women's political rights herself, um, despite her own inherited omnipotence. Um, and so then in my research, I found other deified colonial wives of British officers. Um, in particular, and really tragically, I found a tradition of um, deifying women who had died in childbirth. Um, and of course, in the religion of Rastafari, Haile Selassie's wife, the Empress Menen, is also imbued with divinity. Um, but we don't find many worshipped women in 
the kind of histories I'm examining. Um, and I think that's because, you know, to ask who gets taken or mistaken for a god is to pose the question of what does a god look like? And for the scribes of history, you know, these are so often like white imperialist male Christian writers for whom God is, you know, a white man. Um, but, but at the same time, I also think there are more deified women out there. They're just much harder to find. Um, I'm kind of horrified to say that after I finish the book. So I worked on the book for 10 years and, you know, I still am coming across new gods that I omitted. And I am shocked that I hadn't heard about the deification of Benazir Bhutto in Pakistan. Um, so there's a shrine that's kind of the size of the Taj Mahal devoted to, you know, the great female political leader of Pakistan who was assassinated um, and people worship the shrine um, and she's seen as particularly being able to kind of perform cures and bring about fertility um, and so that's super interesting I wish I wish it could have I could have written about it um, and another another female god who I came across since the book went to press um, is a deified biologist called Kathleen Drew Baker, um, who is revered as a goddess in Japan for her scientific breakthroughs on the cultivation of seaweed. Um, so, you know, I think there are more out there. Um, something in general that I, you know, I hope to do with the book is to kind of present this archetype and then other people can pick it up and see it everywhere and find find more gods and I hope more female characters as well going forward. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> it also seems like though you did um, find a whole range of examples involving um, women involved in religious rituals that supposedly elevate the status of any woman who undergoes the ritual, um, as opposed to singular examples like we've seen with men or like these other couple of, of women that you've found where they're elevated by others um, through whatever reason. Um, would you agree with that? Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, so I'm thinking in particular about the ritual of sati um, in India, um, which was this kind of intensely controversial practice of a widow emulating herself on her husband's funeral pyre, um, kind of joining him in death. And through this religious practice, it was thought that... Um, the woman would incandesce into the goddess Sati. So it was kind of a passage by fire into, into godhood for women who chose or were forced to undergo this ritual. Um, and I write a little bit about it in my book because it really does hinge around an accident of fate. Um, and that's the accident that your husband ends up dying before you do. Um, and so, you know, in India's history, um, thousands of women underwent this ritual, um, which was then 
subject to lots of different legislations um, under the British period and then and then un, in, under Indian self-rule. Um, but in terms of kind of sheer numbers of accidental goddesses, it, it definitely is, as you say, kind of through a ritual structure that that women find that kind of divinity. So your next chapter continues its focus on women's contributions, looking at the rather amazing life of Annie Besant. So she started her career of rebellion with divorce. She was a publishing colleague of atheists and skeptics our listeners might have heard of before, like George Jacob Holyoke, Charles Bradlaugh, George Bernard Shaw, only then to fall in with something called theosophy, and then with a fairly radical and scandalous Anglican priest, Charles Webster Ledbetter in India. So the two of them, uh, Annie and uh, Ledbetter, shared some pretty wild ideas and ended up adopting two Indian brothers, one of whom they declared a second incarnation of Christ. Wild stuff indeed, and a lot to unpack. So can you tell us what happened here? Yeah, so this story, which is probably the most eccentric part of my book, um, and also a bit cringe as well. Um, it's, you know, it's, it starts on a beach in 1909, when Ledbetter catches a glimpse of an Indian boy bathing in the water. Um, and he sees that this boy has the most amazing aura um, and so he's he's captivated. And then he tells Annie Besant, um, his colleague in theosophy about about the boy. And, you know, theosophy is a movement which sees all religions as pathways to the same truth. And it awaits the coming of the Messiah or what they call the Maitreya. Um, and this is a figure who kind of passed through the forms of the Buddha, Krishna, Christ, um, sometimes the prophet Muhammad. So it's this, this figure who keeps coming coming to earth and returning again and again. Um, and so, so Basant and Ledbetter decide that this boy, Jiddu Krishnamurti, is the next vessel. And... It turns out that his fa- the boy's father actually works for them at the Theosophical Society as a secretary, and they kind of force him to relinquish control over his two sons to them because, um, you know, they're his bosses and he can't really refuse. So Krishnamurti is then raised to be a god um, in the Theosophical compound in Adyar near Madras, um, and in my book, I kind of describe the like the daily, excuse me, the daily routine or ritual for grooming a god, um, which begins at 5 a.m. and includes lots of, you know, exercise and schooling. And at night, Krishnamurti would be read terrifying ghost stories because it was considered that fear would be unbecoming of a god. Um, <clears throat> and so then... Um, around 1913, the boy's father, who's called Narayana, decides that he is growing really uncomfortable with everything that's happening. And Ledbetter himself um, was kind of constantly surrounded by a swirl of allegations of pedophilia. Um, and so Narayana takes them to court to 
reclaim custody of his sons. And the really interesting thing about this is that in the divorce you mentioned that Annie Besant had gone through, she had actually lost custody of her own two children. So here you have a woman who had lost her own children, who is then kind of kidnapping somebody else's children and raising them as a god. Um, And to make the story even more strange, um, just in those years, Annie Besant, who had been a really successful activist and trade unionist um, in the UK had risen to the position of president of the Indian National Congress. So she had become a kind of powerful politician in India. um, And she was working with the British to kind of create, she, she wasn't um, her politics were, she wasn't as, um, you know, as strongly pro-independence as, as someone like Gandhi. Um, Annie Besant really believed in the Commonwealth. So she thought that India should still kind of look to Mother Britain um, and be part of a big imperial family. Um, and so the custody trial around Krishnamurti becomes this kind of flashpoint in the struggle for Indian independence. Because on the one hand, you have Besant and Ledbetter who you know, want, want everyone to be a big, happy, imperialist family. And, you know, Mother Britain knows best. And on the other side, um, Hindu independence activists started rallying to the cause of the father, you know, who, who saw these two English people to be kind of appropriating and corrupting not only this boy, but Hinduism itself. Um, And so ultimately, Besant actually wins the case because it's decided in London and she's friends with the judges. Um, And it's not until 1929 that Krishnamurti, who is now, um, you know, much older, he is able to renounce his own status um, as Messiah in a famous speech. Um, in which he he kind of preaches the liberation from all religious cages or any kind of gurus or religious authorities. Um, And then Krishnamurti goes on to have a long, successful career as a guru himself on his own terms. Um, But he would claim that he kind of didn't remember anything about his godhood until he was on his deathbed when it kind of all began to come out again. And right before he died, he kind of left some recordings that that kind of lead us to question whether or not he really saw himself as having been the vessel um, of the Messiah or not. Uh, But it's, yeah, it's a fascinating, wild story. So your next chapter is called Mythopolitics, examining the intersection of myth, religion, and politics in India as well as the United States. So could you tell us how should we understand the meaning of this word and how do you see these ideas playing out in these two countries? Yeah, so mythopolitics is a word that isn't in any dictionary, um, but I think it's a useful one to capture how power is so often rooted in myth. Um, Myths are stories that are also theories and calls to action. And they're powerful because they point in the direction of transcendence. 
you know, they summon us to do the work of transformation, just like politics does. Um, I was inspired to think of the word after reading Ashil Mbebe's Necropolitics and how helpful it was to have a word that could speak to how politics itself is ultimately about who lives and who is killed. Um, and so mythopolitics is at work across all the histories I look at, um, in which creating gods is always a political act. You know, divinity is a form of power, and staking claim to the sacred is a political tool that can be wielded by anyone. Um, and so what I'm trying to show is how, how it kind of always remains within our grasp, um, within reach. So deification works to emancipate and to enslave. It works in kind of two different ways. Um, for instance, if the British, as we saw, kind of used accounts of their own deification to amplify tropes of Indian religious fanaticism and to justify continuing colonial rule, it also works in reverse with the deification of Gandhi. Um, so his elevation to literal godhood in the early 1920s as an avatar of Vishnu really became a powerful force behind the Indian independence movement. Um, and he also would get into, you know, great debates with Annie Besant. Um, oh, I also forgot to mention that Annie Besant herself was, was considered divine by Narayana, um, Krishnamurti's father. And that Besant's own divinity became a kind of flashpoint in the trial, the custody battle as well. Um, so Annie Besant does count among the kind of deified women we spoke of before. Um, but going back to mythopolitics, so we can see it play out in play out today um, in the recent deifications of both India's current prime minister, Narendra Modi, and former President Trump, um, you know, in which the worship of these leaders transcends the secular and is deeply fueled by powerful myths. Um, I think in the case of Trump, this is especially visible with QAnon, um, which is much more than a conspiracy theory, you know. Um, it's a powerful myth. And I think we can see mythopolitics at play, you know, in just the kind of surreal footage of the storming of the U.S. Capitol, um, you know, in January 2021. So that's kind of that's kind of a, a more recent example um, of what I mean by mythopolitics. Uh, in terms of imagery, I was thinking of, I saw just this morning on social media, yet another one of these paintings of Trump, where he's depicted in a divine kind of way. The one I saw this morning, he has a golden uh, breastplate on and he has a sword and he's charging out of uh, clouds. Um, uh, you know, the defender and conqueror, but th there's a lot of these, there's a lot of these out there. So yeah, I've seen, you know, bumper stickers about Trump's godhood. Um, there is a kind of amazing kind of visual archive around his divinity too. Yeah, lest anyone think this is only something other people do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
So your third and final section examines the theme of, in your words, quote, how whiteness became divine. So you start with the Spanish and Portuguese voyages to the New World, in which explorers and conquistadors like Columbus, Magellan, Pizarro, Cortez, and many others were often thought to be gods by the native peoples they encountered. So it seems that the mythologizing was being done by both sides uh, in this case, like some of our others as well. Um, And this, interestingly enough, is connected to the pseudoscientific notions of race that were quickly developing in this era as well. So do I have this right? Yes, exactly. Um, So in the 16th century, just as myths of European explorers mistaken for gods were being recorded and ever retold, um, racial concepts of purity of blood and exclusion were imported from the Spanish Inquisition to the New World. So to preserve the precarious grasp on power, the Spanish concept of limpieza de sangre shifted in meaning from an idea of purity of blood tainted with, you know, Saracen stain or Jewish and Muslim stain um, to a biological concept based on skin tone. So race or rasa, a word that had been used for animal breeds, ceased to lurk in, you know, the obscurity of what your ancestors believed and became visible for everyone who was taught to see it. So originally the Europeans referred, you know, they never referred to themselves as white. They called themselves Christians. Um, But as the natives and enslaved peoples um, who were brought to the New World also became Christian, racial labels of white, black, and red became increasingly used to preserve power for the European minority in in the fragile colonies. Um, And so the friars who were sent to convert the new world preached the blackness of sin, and they set apart the Christian sacred as as pure, kind of unsullied and white. Um, And they repeated and retold these stories of the apotheosis of figures such as Hernan Cortez, who was taken for the Aztec feathered serpent god Quetzalcoatl, or the conquistador Francisco Pizarro, who was allegedly mistaken by the Incas as the creator god Viracocha, um, as they authored their own their own first chronicles um, of the conquest. But, you know, peeling back the layers of these myths of white gods, they often hinged on problems of language um, with indigenous words mistranslated as God in the Christian sense. Um, I look in my book at how, you know, often words that are translated as God um, really meant like a whole, you had a whole like array of different meanings from something kind of unusual or powerful, um, something rare. Um, but, you know, they're translated as, as God. Um, and so the settlers in the New World kept telling these stories of their own godhood because it seemed to sanctify their arrival in the new world as as providential. Um, These stories served as proof that the conquests and the Christian conversion that followed it were legitimate and preordained. Um, You know, like the natives had been waiting for Europeans to arrive and recognize that they were superior and closer to the true God um, by mistaking them for 
celestial beings. And so these stories of apotheosis become really foundational myths of the Americas. So next you look at British explorers to North America, like Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, who were also mistaken for gods. Their discoveries raised difficult questions for Christians about reconciling their notions of race with their theological understandings of the origin of man. So that's interesting. Can you take us through that? Yeah, so both deifications you mentioned um, of Francis Drake among the Miwok people in what's now California and Walter Raleigh in the Orinoco Basin um, in Venezuela today, um, these were used to justify territorial claims in the rivalry of the Spanish versus the English um, and also Dutch powers. Um, So they were used to prove that a certain power must have arrived at a certain land first because the natives there had never seen men so different from themselves that they thought they must be gods. Um, But so the discovery of the New World posed a major dilemma to Christian theology, one which seemed to threaten its very foundations. You know, who were all these unknown people living in the New World? Had they been exposed to the word of Christ at all? You find interesting theories circulating, um, like the Franciscan friar Bernardino Sahagun pointed to the absence of wheat in the New World as evidence that Christianity had never reached there because it was impossible to imagine that the faith would have been planted without the grain that serves as the body of Christ. Um, but then why would God have left all these souls in darkness? Um, how come? And how come the Bible doesn't mention them? Um, and most importantly, were they also descendants of Adam? Um, so with the coalescing of the modern concepts of race and whiteness from the 16th century came the kind of this linked assumption among European theorists that Adam must have had white skin. Um, But then if all men share an ancestor, an Adam, how did racial difference come about? Um, So in my book, I'm looking at how how all these racial theories developed, which provide a theoretical groundwork for white supremacy in the Americas, um, continuing into the present day. Um, The idea becomes prominent that only the white race was descended from Adam, and that only white people were created in the image of God. Um, And so alongside narratives of European explorers mistaken for celestial beings, what I'm calling the divinity of whiteness is forged. Um, This is the pernicious idea that the white race is somehow superior, transcendent, closer to God. Um, I think white divinity is also entrenched in the everyday inviolable privileges of whiteness. Um, And I'm arguing that these myths of white godhood have been a kind of overlooked basis for the white nationalist movements that claim America for the white race alone. Um, Moving from the Civil War to the 1960s civil rights era um, and right up into the present day. Um, The idea of white divinity for me, really gets at how race itself is a set of claims as to who is more or who is less than human. Um, Race 
ultimately continues to be about who lives and who dies um, kind of thinking in, in terms of necropolitics. Um, you know, this is, we see this in, you know, widespread medical racism, police brutality, environmental racism. So I'm looking at all these acts of white deification and I'm wondering, you know, how do we undo these myths? Mm-hmm. So you end end on another really fantastic, sensational story. Um, it's the story of the death of Captain Cook uh, on Hawaii. So first, I'd like to ask you to recount that story. Um, equally interesting, however, is how this story went on to have a life of its own afterward. So if you could also tell us what happened with this, and how does it contribute overall to what you've learned about apotheosis as a cultural phenomenon? Yeah, so in 1779, Cook was on what would prove to be his final voyage to discover the Northwest Passage um, when he landed on Hawaii. And his sailors reported that he was rapturously hailed as a god by thousands of Hawaiians who took him to a temple and sacrificed a pig to him and recited hymns. And according to scholars such as Marshall Solins, Cook had arrived during a festival period known as the Makahiki, when the fertility god Lono returns to Hawaii for a period of time, and Cook was kind of unwittingly playing out the script of this myth. Um, So Cook was allegedly venerated as a god for his entire stay on the island, and then he set sail again, but he was forced to turn back when the mast of the resolution was broken in a storm. So returning to Hawaii, violence soon erupted and Cook was stabbed by a group of Hawaiian warriors. And according to some, he was still playing out the myth in which the king and the god Lono are supposed to fight a ritual battle. Um, So these are kind of used as explanations of why Cook, Cook was killed as opposed to the kind of more obvious reason that he had kind of arrived again on the island and seemed like he was trying to conquer it. Um, But then after his death, sailors recorded prophecies that Cook would resurrect. Um, And so when the news reached England, everyone went crazy over the sensationalism of the story. Um, Cook became major artistic material for the genre of apotheosis paintings, um, and especially in the theater where Cook's death kept being acted out on stage again and again, um, also in ballet form and these kind of very overwrought performances. And then with the colonization of Hawaii, missionaries also seized on the story as a kind of Hawaiian original sin. Um, you know, that Hawaiians had venerated Cook as a god and then killed him, not knowing what they had done. But it was a story that, again, as we saw earlier, kind of legitimized um, the conquest of Hawaii um, and, and its kind of annexation as part of the United States. Um, But, you know, tearing apart the language of the myth, um, Cook was hailed as the fertility god Lono, but this word itself also turns out to have been a kind of all-purpose title given to human chiefs um, 
or anyone who seemed especially powerful. Like it was the name of a god, but there's also kind of a lot of ambiguity around whether, whether you know, Cook was actually seen as divine. Um, but I decided to end my book with this story because, you know, having having taken us through the kind of coalescing of race and these stories of white gods um, and white histories of white supremacy, I'm thinking about deicide, you know, really like how do we kill a god? How do we undo these myths that have made gods out of white men? Um, and what would it mean to start seeing the infinite in all kinds of people? Um, so ultimately, I leave off in my book with the idea that we need to kill these gods mm-hmm. among us and, you know, really find a better set of myths. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, Anadella, I've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Oh, sure. So, yeah, I have a number of different projects at the moment. Um, I also review a lot of books um, in the areas of religion and politics and myth. Um, So I'm always being kept busy. But I guess my longest term project is that I'm interested in writing a broader history of mysticism. Um, So I'm kind of taking as my starting point the famous line by the French poet and philosopher Charles Peggy, um, who famously wrote, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Um, so is, is that true? Uh, or is it the other way around? You know, does everything begin in politics and end in mysticism? Um, you know, in any case, there's a very deep connection between the two that I think hasn't been fully explored in a way that blends history and political theology and storytelling and feels kind of free to roam across time and place um, like I do in Accidental Gods. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what's next for me, but you'll have to check in in like another decade <laughs> to see how it's going. <laughs> Oh, this, that sounds really, really interesting, um, especially when you allude to like the problem of which comes first. I wonder if, you know, both are a means to power. So mm-hmm. maybe some people try one way and if it doesn't work out, they end up with the other. I don't know. But that is, yeah, a, that exactly. is a very interesting topic for research. Oh, no, thank so. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, listen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule with your little one today to be on the show. Your book was a real pleasure. I want to encourage our listeners to check it out. Some fantastic and amazing stories in there. Um, So I'm really glad you were able to come on the show and chat with me about it. Oh, thanks so much, Carrie. This was a huge pleasure and a great conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day. Goodbye. Oh, you too. Take care. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Anna Della Subin about her new book, Accidental Gods, on race, empire, and men unwittingly turned divine, published by Metropolitan Books. If you'd like to find out more about Anna Della's work and other appearances, you can visit her website at annadellasubin.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. 
I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Do you know of a case of apotheosis that we missed? Tell us about it. You can find me on Twitter, still at Twitter, on uh, or at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books Network page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an a la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books. Mm-hmm.